Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hi everybody, welcome back to 10% True. This is my second interview to commemorate the 30th anniversary of Desert Storm. It's with Rick Cluzo-Tolini, the F-15C pilot who led the first MiG sweep into Iraq on the night of 17th of January 1991. In this, the first part of the interview, Cluzo talks about the lead-up to war, the effort to plan the massed air armada that would cross into Iraq that first night, and what the Eagle community knew, or thought they knew, about the Iraqi Air Force. Subscribe and hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the second part of this interview, in which Clouseau will talk through that first night and then discuss his January the 19th MiG-25 Foxback kill. If you haven't already, please check out the other Desert Storm interview with Tornado Navigator Adam Robinson. Adam's testimony of striking an airfield on the first night is one of the very few recorded interviews detailing the exploits of RAF Tornado crews all those years ago. I'll put the link on the screen now. Finally, Cluzo has a new book coming out through his publisher, Casemate. He's also a great musician, and so I've provided some links below to his Facebook page and other social media accounts. Please do support him by buying a copy of the book. Enjoy. Cluzo, thanks for coming on 10% True. It's great to have you here. Yeah, Steve, it's like, you know, really great to see you. And yeah, I'm really happy to do this with you. It's, it's an honor. Thank you very much. Thanks. It's almost as though we rehearsed that. Yeah. <laughs> no. It, it's been uh, almost 30 years. It's 30 years and a week or two's time since Desert Storm. Uh, it was the 1991 invasion of, of Iraq by coalition forces led by the US. Um, and you're one of the uh, Eagle drivers who went out there and successfully fended off the Iraqi Air Force, uh, got yourself a, a MiG-25 kill in the process. And that's really the purpose of this interview is to talk about your experience and um, you know how the war looked and, and went from your point of view. Um, but before we do that, it just makes sense maybe to just talk really briefly about how it is you got into the flying business and what your career path in the US Air Force had looked like until that point. Okay, um, I'll, I'll try to do the abbreviated portion. If you want the full portion, I just wrote a book. So this is a <laughs> a plug. It's called Call Sign Cluso, K-L-U-S-O. So it's coming out uh, available for pre-order on Amazon and being released in April by Casemate Publishing. But uh, in the book, I actually go through my whole life and how I got started. And it really started with my dad flying a Super Cub in Northern California. Uh, when I was a, like a 12, 13 years old, when I first started with him and he was just a private pilot and he hadn't flown for many years. He, 
he learned how to fly in a J3 Cub. And then he was connected to the Army Depot there that had a flying club. And so he could afford, it was really cheap to rent their airplanes. So that was really my big benefit to both be exposed to flying and uh, and to find that I was I was a kid that was afraid of anything that moved. Uh, I didn't do roller coasters or anything. So, but for some reason, flying just seemed like, oh, I like this. And it seemed natural to me. Um, and then from that point, uh, it became my focus, which was really a focus of, I'm going to be an airline pilot. And that was my intent. And I went to San Jose State University in California, which had a really great aeronautics department. And, um, and that was part of my preparation. And the other part of it was I became a certified flight instructor towards the end of that. Uh, they actually hired me to teach at the school. Um, and I was on my way. It was going to be a lot of work. And I had other friends doing the same thing. But I was on my way to being an airline pilot. And uh, I knew it was going to take a few years. But there was a path forward. And uh, this is outlined in the book. But I, I just happened to meet a, a friend from college who had just come back from officer training school and we were both like California hippies. You're like nobody, this was seventies, you know, the military was still didn't have a great reputation in the U S post Vietnam. And so nobody really considered a military path. Uh, I won't say nobody, but he was like, had a short haircut. His long hair was gone. And uh, I go, dude, what are, what are you doing? He goes, I joined the air force. I'm going to pilot training. And he told me all about it. And, uh, uh, I go, it just planted the seed in my brain. And literally I was driving by a recruiting station one day and I just pulled over. I walked in, I go, I want, how do I become a pilot in the air force? And I, the guys in the office just look at me. I had this really long hair, long beard. They just kind of, I could tell they were smirking. They go, yeah, sure. And then I pulled out all my pilot ratings. They go, oh, let's, let, let us get the paperwork for you. <laughs> And uh, it was really whirlwind. And within a year, I was at Williams Air Force Base uh, in pilot training. And from that point, um, I, I had this idea to fly 111s. I, I kind of shifted my initial intent going to Air Force was, oh, I'll go in the Air Force, get out, and go into the airlines. So I'll have my fun in the Air Force. And a lot of guys did that at that time. And it was a pretty short commitment. So... But once I got in and started flying little jets that went pretty fast and were acrobatic, I go, oh, this fighter pilot thing looks pretty good. And uh, my my instructors convinced me that F-15 was the, was the way to go. And I was fortunate enough to graduate at the top of the class. And I got, I got my first choice in airplane. It wasn't the first choice in location. Um, I, there was two F-15s on the board. One was to Eglin Air Force Base in Florida, and I knew where that was. And the other one was to Kadena in Okinawa, and I had no idea even where Okinawa was. <laughs> and I got that one, and it wasn't until later that I found out I got the best assignment of the of the event. Of uh, It was kind of a really well-kept secret, not so much real secret in the Air Force that the best place to fly Eagles was at Kadena Air Base. And uh, I ended up there in 1984. What, so, what, what was uh, it about Kadena then that made the um, It was known as the, uh, um, the well, it, first of all, it's overseas. And so they say tip of the spear because, you know, you're like 
30, 40 minutes away from the Korean peninsula. So you had the potential. So it really had a atmosphere of you got to be ready for combat today. And, uh, and that didn't always exist in the stateside units and, uh, and was called the tip of the spear, which is a common military term for units that are usually forward deployed like that. Um, but it was also known as the home of large force employment. And this was kind of an idea brought out through, uh, the leaders of air superiority at the time. And, um, and the idea was regardless of numbers or whatever, at any moment in time, if we knew how to marshal our forces, we could overwhelm any enemy just with both, not just technical and expertise, but also with numbers. And so we practice large force employment at Kadena. And I'm talking like we go to, to the Philippines for Cope Thunder exercises, which is like a red flag exercise for the Pacific. And we'd have like 60, 70, 80 airplanes airborne. On the good, on the blue side, and another 30, 40 on the adversary red side. So it was like, it was literally Battle of Berlin some days. And, and, and besides the, the basic training that was done and the emphasis on expertise and professionalism that generally in, was built into the culture of the units at Kadena, uh, you got to get good at the basic fundamentals, but also you got to experience exercising and training in environments that most of the rest of the combat air force didn't. Uh, I would say in Europe, they did it more. And so uh, I allude to this in the book that uh, the, the guys that came from Kadena and the guys that came from USAFE from the European theater, they just had that higher level of experience and expertise in combat oriented mission structures which would be what we would end up doing in Desert Storm. So, so it was a natural flow. But uh, from there, I, I, did, I, didn't, I was just an average guy when I got there, but I had really good instructors, really good mentors, and they got me up to be an instructor on my first assignment, which was not usual. And I got fortunate that most people didn't get to go to a follow-on F-15 assignment. They would... Um, they would go do something else, fly a different airplane staff job. And once a year, they got to pick one pilot a year to stay in the F-15. And uh, that year was me. And so I got my my F, which I didn't expect. Um, and that follow-on ass assignment was to Eglin Air Force Base. So I eventually got to that Eglin <laughs> assignment that was on the board on assignment night. But uh, it was kind of a roundabout path. But that really was the launching point. And this, my squadron was the Dirty Dozen, the 12th uh, Fighter Squadron, or at that time, 12th Tactical Fighter Squadron. And that squadron, I pretty much attribute most of my success in the Air Force, tactically and operationally, and even in leadership roles, to the mentoring uh, that I got in my first assignment at Kadena in the Dirty Dozen. Um, but from there, I went to Eglin, a uh, really group of, good group of people there. Squadron man commander was Paco Geisler. We had a, a lot of opportunities for additional training because our aircraft, we were going through the MISIP upgrade, multi-stage improvement program. And that was preparing the avionics and the weapon system in the F-15C to be, eventually be able to carry and employ the AMRAM, the AIM-120 
Um, and until you got that modification, you couldn't do that. And we were the first squadron in the Air Force. So we got a lot of additional training and we'd go out to Nellis to the red flag areas and uh, work with the 422 test squadron. I got to go fly constant peg. That was while I was at Kadena. So referencing your book and Gail Peck's book. Uh, that was a good experience. And so from there, I was I was prepared. I went to weapons school from the 58th. I was in the 58th Tactical Fighter Squadron, the guerrillas, and came back to wep from weapons school as the weapons officer, um, which is kind of a spe if if your audience doesn't know what a weapons officer is, it's not a weapons system officer like the backseater, like in a F-15E or an F-4. Uh, weapons, it's a weapons and tactics officer. And and I guess the, it's like the Air Force version of the top gun. In other words, he's, he's the lead instructor in the squadron, uh, usually a captain level, but he is in charge of uh, leading the instructional cadre, uh, leading the academic effort. And really he's in charge of preparing the squadron for combat. And, and in theory, leading the squadron in combat, even though you have, you know, other people in leadership roles. So, so I was fortunate to come back there and we didn't think anything was going to happen because, uh, you know, we were prepared to go fight in Europe against the Soviets. That's what we built that air force for. That's that, that was Eglin's, the 58 squadrons tasking is if there was anything in Europe, we would deploy into Europe as a, as a, uh, a reserve effort there and uh and all of a sudden the berlin wall came down it was like well where's our what are we preparing for and that that was a real problem it's like how, how do you keep guys motivated and uh i tell this story in the book too is uh i'd taken up a bad habit of smoking at the time so i was trying to quit but like coffee and cigarettes were my my bad habit and uh i would meet my wingman my eventual wingman, and he was a good friend. We were at pilot training together, uh, Larry Cherry Pitts. And I'm pretty sure it was Cherry that was in the squadron bar slash break room. And in the morning, I walked in there because we'd always have a cup of coffee and a cigarette. And he looks up at the TV and goes, hey, look what's going on. And it's like CNN. And we see the Langley F-15 Eagles with three bags, three external tanks. That means a lot of gas. They're going somewhere very far. And the headline was, uh, Iraq invades Kuwait and these guys were blasting off to go to the, go to uh, Saudi Arabia. And the only thing we could think of was, yeah, we're probably next. And that it just flipped, uh, you know, on the flip of a coin, uh, all of a sudden, yeah, it's like, Oh, hope you guys are ready because we're, we're going. So, so that was my journey to, to Saudi Arabia to, to book air base where we deployed to then eventually desert shield, desert storm. Going back then to the the work that you were doing <clears throat> with Parker Geisler as your your squadron commander, so he was a Red Eagle, um, obviously. Yeah. And, uh, did Did you know uh, much about what he had been doing, uh, and and how useful did you find Constant Peg? I mean, looking back on it now, how useful yeah. was Constant Peg? Um, it was. Um, we didn't know what it was when we got there. It was top secret. <laughs> we had to like they brought us all into a, we we didn't even know why we were there we ended up at um nellis because we were still at kadena uh, our airplanes and other pilots went to florida for the william tell air competition 
And we met them at Nellis Air Force Base, supposedly to do some dissimilar aircraft training, DACT, dissimilar air combat training, which just means you fly against normally a, a different kind of airplane, like an F-16 or an F-18 or something, which which is good to do. And But it's like, well, we do that at home all the time. Why do we have to come all the way to Las Vegas to do that? So we had no clue. And then they brought us in a room and, uh, you know, you sign your life away on a piece of paper and swear you're never going to tell anybody. And then the next thing I know, I'm up in the air and there's a MiG-21 off my left wing and he's talking to me. So, okay, here's what we're going to do. And it could have been Paco in that MiG-21. I'm not sure who it was that day. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the, the technical part of the training wasn't anything that we hadn't done. And, um, and I'd flown against F-5 aggressors a lot because we had an aggressor squadron in the Philippines and they would come, we'd fly with them there and against them at Kadena. And they, that was their platform they were simulating was a MiG-21 and they did a really good job of it. It's totally different when you look over and you see a fish bed next to you and it's just like, wow <laughs> so, so that was really cool and then you really get to see the performance differences and surprisingly it's like that airplane could do some pretty cool little things so you got to be careful with it because in the hands of a very experienced pilot he could beat you even though he's like you know a second generation fighter uh he could he can if you get in a knife fight with the guy uh he could beat you if you weren't careful. So that was really beneficial. I, I didn't get to fly against the flogger because the flogger broke that day. And then I think I did a 1v2 against MiG-21s and, and I beat him up pretty bad. <laughs> so, but it's just like the uh, the WESIP, the missile program, uh, where you try to get over that buck fever, where it's, it's, like, um, it's like the red flag program where they want you to get 10 simulated combat type missions under your belt as a minimum um and then fire real live missiles so you know what it feels like when a missile comes off the jet uh, the sound you see a missile fly out you can kind of judge is this missile going to get there or not and then to have the bonus of flying against a true adversary jet and see it to where the first time you see it in combat you're not going to be hesitating uh those those all came to fruition in Desert Storm for myself and other guys in the squadron. So so the benefit of that training was tremendous. So so up until you'd seen the the guys at Langley uh, launch off into uh, the distance then on, on telly, did you have no inkling at all about what was going on? There were no, so there was nothing going on in the vault to say, you know. No, no, we had no clue. I, I don't think the U.S., I think the U.S., National Command Authority was pretty surprised by that invasion from what I, I remember. It was a mad scramble. Like, oh, my God, we got to get people over there. Uh, nobody was preparing. We had, we, had, we had not prepared for Southwest Asia at all because our, our theater of operation even then was still to deploy to, to Germany, to West Germany at the time. And, uh, and so... We didn't know anything about any bases in the theater where we might go. We we got told three or four different bases that we would end up. And we got told to leave three or four times and then would get canceled at the last minute. Um, and then we, when we finally were leaving, they go, okay, you're going to uh, this base and it's Tabuk in the western sector of Saudi Arabia. 
Had, so had you completed the MISIP upgrade at that point? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had. But the other thing that had also happened is, you know, you mentioned Paco Geisler. He was the commander when I got there. And and it was kind of a it was a all star team of players in the in the gorillas, because I, I assume because of the MISIP upgrade, he got to like handpick people coming in. And we had a really high experience level uh, when Paco was there and up to the point where he left. And it included some of the key players in the in the uh, in the war. And that was uh, Rob Cheese Grater and John J.B. Kelk, uh, to name it. And uh, we ended up with uh, Hoser Drager, Rory Drager, who, who he's passed away uh, since then. But um, and he was the weapons officer in the 59th Squadron. So so. But what had also occurred, which is normal in a fighter squadron, is we'd completed the missile upgrade. And then at that point, a lot of our kind of mid-level experience guys, our flight leads and, and so forth, they started leaving on other assignments. And we, we got about six months prior, a year, six months to 12 months prior to us deploying, we had an influx of a lot of second lieutenants, like newbies. And we spent a lot of our time just doing their initial mission qualification training. So uh, we left a couple people behind because they either weren't finished with their initial training or they were just too new. And so we augmented with a few more experienced guys from the 67th Squadron. And then Hoser Drager came over from the uh, 58th. Um, and, uh, and we had a lot of young guys uh, that we took with us. And, you know, they had to be able to step up and be ready. So, so, you know, hats off to them that they were, they were there to be part of the team and contribute to. Did you, I'm, I'm sort of jumping ahead a tiny bit, but did you have Len, uh, just a shortage of AMRAMs? Because it wasn't till right at the end of the war that I think the first AMRAM kill came and that was from an F-16, well, right? Well, we were, we, even though we'd gone through um, training to simulate use of AMRAMs, our, we didn't actually have AMRAMs operational yet. So, and the reason for that is our radar, our weapon system um, suite or the tapes we use for the radar for the entire F-15 fleet, we, you couldn't do it just that with a standalone squadron unless you were like a test squadron. Uh, they hadn't been upgraded yet. So we, we physically could not shoot the AMRAMs yet. And they brought them in at the end of the war much to everybody's displeasure that was out there surprisingly but the problem was they were they were going to have to change the avionics the weapon system software to strap the amrams on and be able to employ it it's like and we haven't gone through any everybody else in the theater nobody's gone through testing and evaluation we had experience doing things like that but uh, it's like, you don't want to do that in the middle of the war. So everybody's going, no, just leave us alone. And they found out right away. Yeah. There was a problem with the radar tape. Um, and they had, to, they had to download it, take it off. Uh, we went back to the normal configuration and I, I'd left right at that time. I'd left the theater a little bit early. So, um, so that's why the AMRAM didn't really enter the war. It wasn't ready for operational use. And even at the end, when, when they tried to kind of force it in there for whatever <laughs> political or uh, whatever reasons they wanted to do that. Uh, it wasn't ready either. And it wasn't the missile necessarily. It was the aircraft uh, weren't all ready to accept it. So, 
So, so what was the uh, initial period then at Tabuk like? Um, what sort of things were you doing to familiarise yourself with that Southwest Asian um, theatre? What, what, what intelligence did you have about the Iraqi Air Force? We were, we were what, trying, to, trying to find where we could get alcohol. <laughs> 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 no, I'm just kidding. That's true, but I, that's not what we were focused on. So. I have a lot of stories about that. Um, yeah, so it was really a mad scramble, and um, and it really took us a couple weeks to get there to acclimate. Um, and the mad the mad scramble kind of ended pretty quickly because they realized uh, Saddam and the Iraqis were not going to cross the Saudi border uh, anytime soon. So so then it became kind of a hurry up and wait situation, and uh, and so. At that point, it became um, it became more of an issue for me as the weapons officer is how do I keep everybody ready and how do we train? And it's hard to train when we had to have a lot of jets armed just in case. And you don't train with live live missiles on the jet. It's just you just never do it. Uh, and there's too many restrictions if you do. Um, so So that was an issue, how to keep everybody up to speed. But what had happened um, early on is I got sent to Riyadh, and I'm not going to tell you the whole story because it'll take too long, but by the book, <laughs> I, I'll tell it in the book, I got sent to Riyadh as a captain in a room full of like lieutenant colonels and generals. And uh, they, they um, this was probably about a week after I arrived, and um, they, they showed us the initial desert storm plan. And, and the funny thing, I tell a funny story about it in the book, but, um, the, I looked at it and they were, it was, it was big. It was like the first three days they briefed us on the generic, not detailed stuff, but here's what we're going to do in the first three days and the size of the packages and how they were going to go in and stuff like that. And I saw a lot of people in the room kind of like, Oh man, look at that. And I was just looking at it going, cool. That looks like a, I <laughs> looks like a Cope Thunder down in the Philippines. <laughs> so it's like, to me, it was like nothing new other than it was all going on at once, but we're only, you know, one wedge of that. So for our missions, I was going, oh yeah, we can do that. And so, uh, so I brought that back, the plan, the desert storm plan back to, to book, but I couldn't tell anybody about it. Um, I could only tell uh, Tonic, Teal, our squadron commander, and then Colonel Parsons, who was our wing commander who deployed with us. They were the only ones I could tell about it. And they told me, no, you can't tell anybody else either. That was their direction. So so individually for preparation for the war, for about the next three or four months, I had to prepare and plan what we were going to do, how we were going to do it, and any find out any limitations or limb facts into doing it and suggest recommendations to fix those. Uh, I had to do that all on my own. I was in this little tiny trailer. I would hide in there so nobody knew where I was and go through it and then give it all back to our intel officer and tell them to put it in the stake. Um, until right around December, when Tonic finally allowed me to brief the mission commanders. I'd already I'd already scheduled the first three days. I knew what who was going to do every every single mission, and I knew who who I was going to select as mission commanders. So 
So I was finally able to get them on, on the plan because they, they needed to talk to the other units. And these were mostly for the strike missions, the offensive counter air. So we were basically going to do offensive counter air uh, escort sweep for strikers. Uh, we we're going to do defensive counter air and high value asset protection south of the border. And then we'd have a few jets on alert, mostly just a backfill in case we lost some airplanes or they had to come back early or something like that. So, so that was the generic uh, plan. And then, and the rest of the time it was like, yeah, just sit. We didn't really think we were going to go to war. Uh, we just, after, you know, it's like, Hey, if we haven't started this in two or three months, we're just going to sit here forever. And uh, it wasn't until around December, January rolled around beginning of January, the new year rolled around that you could hear the, you can hear the, war drums beating, especially what was coming out of Washington. And we, we, we could watch like segments of CNN and stuff like that. And it was like, Ooh, yeah, it looks like maybe this is going to happen. And then about a, maybe a less than a week before the war started, the general who was in charge of the operational tasking planning, the ATO air tasking order was general Glosson, Buster Glosson. I got a good story about that, but uh, <laughs> I think I know the story. You, did I tell you? Uh, I don't know yeah. if it was you or Mike, Mike Scott who told me. Do you know Mike Scott? Okay. Uh, he, no. he was a X-ray Eagle. He was a colonel, and he was uh, the guy that did all the press briefings for for Glosson. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm not sure. I've heard some stories from him, he, and, he and I've heard one from you. He had quite a reputation, and I got a part of that <laughs> when I was at that Riyadh meeting, where there. So. I, if if you have a lot of time at the end, I can tell you that story. But okay. I want to leave, right. I want to leave a few tidbits for people to buy the book. So <laughs> it's a good one though. Okay. Anyway, he comes out and he gives us a pep talk, and it was really good. It was like a good you know Newt Rockney, if you know Notre Dame, you know here's what you're gonna do, kind of pretty close to the Patton movie, <laughs> you know. And everybody's like, wow, we're going. And so then it was just a matter of which day was it going to be. But we we knew there was a window that if, if we were going to do it in January based on, you know, time of the year, the seasons, the boon, you know, all that weather issues and stuff. Uh, we kind of knew what the window was. So it wasn't a big surprise when we got told, hey, we're starting tonight. So, so can, I, can I take you back then um, a little bit, Cluzo, and, and just... Mm -hmm talk about the plan generally then so it was this big uh, they used to be called sort of alpha packages didn't they i don't know if that's the right terminology for it that's, but it was that's a navy term but okay. i think most people are familiar with that but um there were there were things that were alpha packages and so just to explain that to your viewers if they don't know an alpha package is a classic um just like we would do at um, um cope thunder philippines is a classic package of strike aircraft, the number might change. So it might be four, it might be eight, 12, 20, 30. For the initial desert storm daytime missions, they were big. They were like 30 F-16s, like two full squadrons and F-16s, whatever they could get airborne. And then you would have offensive counter air support, which would be things like uh, maybe jammers, electronic jammers. So at that time we were using the EF-111. You'd have uh, suppression of enemy air defenses, seed assets, which were the F-4G wild weasels. Um, you had other kind of 
secondary support assets in the comm area and things like that, that were doing stuff. And then you obviously had your command and control assets out there. And then for the Eagles, we were either escort or sweep or some combination of that to, to take out uh, the enemy air and protect the strike package in going inbound and coming out. So, so that's a classic uh, alpha package, whether it's an air force term or Navy. Um, and, and yeah, on the, the first day, the probably the unique thing about Desert Storm was the first night. That was non-traditional to what we had trained to. So, you know, I, I think you detail that in your books. But but the idea that there was guys going in unprotected for the initial go, basically uh, F-117s, F-15Es, and some EF-111s going in at night, totally unprotected, that was not standard air force doctrine and and then obviously there was other stuff going on with the special ops guys and helicopters gunships taking down the the radar sites early so that was doctrinally like that was, I, I was impressed by that i was like wow and then the other cool thing was my eight ship and then the langley uh forces and bitburg came into play too we were a pure fighter sweep on the first night which that is a type of mission, but rarely, rarely executed, uh, where there was nobody to protect. Uh, we were just going to go there and shoot down any Iraqi airplanes we found after the initial surprise attack and the guys that went in unprotected got out. So that, that was the plan on the first night. But after that, I know there was a alpha strike of um, seed assets from the Navy package, Red Sea uh, Navy package. That's that was mostly Hornets and A6s and EA6s, and that was a night package. And that was mostly, um, yeah, air base and SAM suppression. Uh, that's where Scott Spiker got shot down. So I don't know if you know all the details of that, but we know all, we know all the details now. Um, and then he, after he that- He was shot down by a MiG-25, wasn't he? Yeah. Was an a, yeah. AA-8 off, a, off of a MiG-25, I think. Yeah, it, yeah, AA-6, yeah. AA-6, um, yeah, so uh, Daoud was the Foxbat pilot, and uh, I, I don't know if um, Doug Dildy um, provided me the a, a scripted detail of how that went from one of the Navy guys that was on the, and it was just one of those fog of war kind of things, and and he was he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and Daoud and his Foxbat was in the right place at the right time, and he actually saw his burner, he saw the. Uh, spikers burner cans burner plumes at night which at night you can see afterburners from a long ways away and he used that to cue his radar and or his missile so but anyway so but the next day and the next uh several days were daytime alpha packages also um and those were the big ones so so i got to go on several of those too what about i mean you've already referenced the fact that you know different squadrons and and guys with different backgrounds perform differently and one of the things again it's jumping ahead um, perhaps to the end of the conversation but one of the things that's noteworthy is that some units didn't perform as well as perhaps they would have been expected to so when you were going through this process of planning were you talking to the guys at Dharam were you talking to the guys up at Inchalik because there were F-15s up in Turkey as well they were going to come south you had other Eagle units stationed throughout uh, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia Um, yeah oh yeah uh, well, not the guys up north, not in Turkey. Uh, we had no communication with them. 
that was bad because we had a couple instances where we could have had friendly on friendly. We were not connected to their air tasking order. We had or their communication plan. We just had a line, a latitude line north of Baghdad, a little ways uh, north of uh, uh, Samara and Balad. And, and they just said, those guys are going to stay north of it and we'll stay south. But every once in a while, you'd meet up there. And that was not good. So uh, I wouldn't quantify it as other units or guys were, I don't know how you said it, but I don't want to say people didn't perform as well. Because um, that's not, I can't, I don't have any way to qualify that statement. But uh, I, I think it was two things. Uh, maybe their opportunities were less. And maybe their experience levels were less than the gorillas. And, um, and I was fortunate to get a really good connection with the plan shops and people in the planning shop. And through all my pre-war planning, I was able to figure out how to give Riyadh more F-15 missions. And when I did that, we were kind of like, oh, we, they were like, oh, we like these Eglin guys because <laughs> they wanted, they needed F-15s to perform the OCA alpha packages. And the other squadrons were having a hard time figuring out how to give them what they wanted. And I figured out how to do that. Uh, and then plus with our experience level, and I knew we had really highly qualified guys to lead these large packages. Um, then um, we got given, I asked for, and they gave us some of the better missions on the first couple of days, some of the lead mission commander lead for the air to air portion, at least on some of the big alpha strike missions. And that's where we got most of our, um, our shoot downs in the first night, but also several on the next couple of days. So I think in the first three days we had nine, I think, uh, we took down nine Iraqi aircraft in the first three days, which was more than anybody else. And we had, guys on the front end on the alpha on those OCA packages that besides their experience I, they were aggressive in other words we would seek out the enemy <laughs> so it was whether the enemy wanted to come to us was probably the big issue but uh so so once again i think part of that was just opportunity and i i expected actually langley to get a lot more action on the east side uh, but I'm not sure the Iraqis knew <laughs> where we were or who was over there in Tobuk. And they tried to do a lot of their flying on the west side of Baghdad. And that's that was our AOR. That belonged to the guerrillas for the most part. And so so opportunity was, you know, maybe just by chance, but we were prepared for it when it when it came. So before we talk then about the that first night and uh, your preparations, you know, in the hours leading up to it, um, what did you know about the Iraqi Air Force then? What did you know about their fighter capability, their pilots, their training? Uh, surprisingly, not that much. Um, so most of what we we knew their airplanes. So I mean, the, the platforms we knew, uh, the MiG twenty nine, um, and in the F1 um, Mirage and some of their other platforms, the, the MiG-25, we actually kind of scoffed at because it seemed like it was a low tech airplane. Um, maybe that was our arrogance. <laughs> and, and also we just didn't know. Uh, but what we did have was we had lessons from the Iran Iraq war. So we were pretty familiar with some of their tactics. 
And a lot of their tactics looked like uh, Soviet-based tactics where they would, and what they had ran against Iran, where they tried to decoy you and get you to go after the decoy and, and kind of, you know, sneak up on you that way. And so, but those, those are tactics we were very familiar with and that our own aggressors would train us to recognize and counter. So, so there was nothing they were going to give us in the way of tactics that was surprising. We knew they didn't fly as much as us and they probably didn't, they did not train at the high, at the alpha package kind of level. It was generally, they're out there as two ships, maybe a four ship max. And it was more intercept oriented training rather than full spectrum air combat training. So, so we figured we had that experience level. Um, I, I would say the thing that surprised us is uh, we knew the Foxbat pilots. I think we'd been told that they mostly had trained with uh, Soviet or Russian pilots. That's where they got their training. It was such a unique platform. We didn't really understand or know that the best pilots in the Iraqi Air Force generally flew the Foxbat. That was a surprise. And um, that was probably a little bit of a failing in Intel. Um, and the we just assumed their their fourth generation airplane was the MiG-29. And we just assumed that was, that's, well, like if you're an Air Force guy, you want to go to the newest airplane. But actually, the, the kind of airplane everybody wanted to fly in, in Iraq was the MiG-25. And so they really, the cream of their Air Force, their fighter pilot corps, were Foxbat pilots. And I think they knew how to operate that airplane in, in, in the realm that it performed best, at least until January 19th. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I think it could get, yeah. get up and go. I mean, we would yeah. see them doing reconnaissance runs during Desert Storm. Uh, and they would come right at the Saudi border at 50,000 feet doing Mach 2 plus, And you would lock them up. You just go, Wow, <laughs> that's impressive. <laughs> and then they would turn before they got to the border. So it's it's an interesting aside then, um, because I think it was um, uh, Tom Dietz and Bob Heeman. They had oh, yeah. a couple of t- tussles with some oh, twenty fives, yeah. sort of dragged them over the um, Baghdad mm-hmm. uh, super mez. Um, and there was some. I suppose it happens all the time, but there was some there was some conspiracy theory that maybe some Russian pilots were flying those aircraft. Um, did that were those rumors at the time? That's what I thought. I told Cherry that. I go, Cherry, the, those had. I go, those aren't those weren't Iraqis. Those had to be Russians, because they they came in at a. I knew what they were trying to do, and it, it looked like a Russian tactic. But uh, not only that, but their defensive response was excellent both at the longer range and in once they got in close and using countermeasures like chap and flare it's like who are these guys these guys are good they're making this really hard (laughs) and uh i just kind of i went through most of my career thinking i think i don't and then that once again, that's just kind of arrogance on my part or lack of intel and knowledge. I didn't expect the best pilots they had were the Foxbat pilots, who, by the way, had combat experience. They had been fighting the Iranians for a while, so they they were not afraid of combat. They were not shy to engage us, which became obvious. 
Um, and uh, I think they were proud and well-trained pilots as any fighter pilot should be. So, so it wasn't really later. And then Doug Dildy, when he got, and uh, Tom Cooper was helping him had the background information on those guys and that day and those missions. It's like, Oh, that was them. And these, these were their best pilots and they, they pretty much proved it. I mean, the outcome wasn't great for them, but uh, they knew how to fly their jet. 